Hello. Welcome to Kids Corner with Dr. Elizabeth Mumper. I am a board certified pediatrician with 42 years of experience, and I am delighted to be here with the FLCCC to talk to you about COVID and kids. Let me share my screen. And today we're going to be talking about the COVID vaccine and why we believe that COVID vaccines are not indicated in pediatric patients. So we've looked at the data very carefully and tried to put together the highlights for you. Early in 2021, in July, Dr. Marty McCary, who's at Johns Hopkins, wrote a good article about the flimsy evidence behind the CDC's push to vaccinate children. And you can read this because it was in the Wall Street Journal. About a year later, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance published an open letter to Canadian health officials. This was an impressive document. It had 117 references. They concluded that the data shows that in the Omicron era and beyond, when population-based immunity is widespread, the risks associated with COVID-19 mRNA vaccines far outweigh the benefits in children, and I agree. Most children have already had COVID. In fact, 89% had already had it by last summer, and surely the numbers are higher now. If your child has already had chickenpox, we don't give a chickenpox vaccine because they already have natural immunity. Similarly, if your child has already had COVID, they have natural immunity. And given the lack of long-term safety data and the potential significant side effects, the FLCCC recommends against COVID shots for healthy kids. Natural immunity is very important, and here is one article that looked at that issue. Among persons who had been previously infected with SARS-CoV-2, regardless of whether they had received any dose of vaccine or whether they got one before or after infection, protection against reinfection decreases as the time increased. But protection was higher from natural immunity than that conferred after the same time had elapsed since receipt of the second dose of the vaccine among previously uninfected persons. The big journals are now starting to cover natural immunity with the respect that it deserves. And they have concluded that natural immunity is superior and longer lasting than vaccine-induced immunity. Two of the articles are listed here. One was in JAMA, Prevalence and Durability of SARS-CoV-2 Antibodies Against Unvaccinated U.S. Adults. And I will acknowledge here that this was looking at adults and not kids, but they showed evidence of natural immunity at least up to 20 months. And we know now that in some groups of children, vaccine-induced antibodies only last about five weeks. Another article, Past SARS-CoV-2 Infection Protection Against Reinfection. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis. So these authors looked at 65 different studies from 19 different countries. Their meta-analysis showed that protection from past infection and any symptomatic disease was high for the ancestral strain, alpha, beta, and delta variants, but was lower for Omicron BA1. It's important for you to understand that the risk of bad outcomes from COVID is very, very low in pediatric patients. Let me show you some of the data and some of the reasons why. Children are less at risk of bad outcomes and in fact survive COVID 99.997% of the time. Some of the possible reasons, children have excellent innate immune systems. And at the end of this lecture, we'll look at what that means. 
children are less likely to mount an immune over-response reaction to COVID. And that's what gets a lot of adults into trouble and into the hospital. Children have fewer ACE2 receptors from the COVID virus to bind to, and that's what causes mischief. And children have fewer comorbidities or other diseases than adults do. A study in England confirmed this impression that children's risk of dying is extremely low. They did show in this study that those children living with multiple chronic illnesses and neurologic disabilities were more likely to be at risk. But even in those children, the overall risk remains low. So let's look more specifically at the numbers. This is from 2020, back before a lot of kids had antibodies and before we knew nearly as much as we do about COVID now. The overall deaths from COVID in kids under 18 was 182. Eight of those deaths were in previously healthy kids out of a cohort of about 17.5 million. So if you actually do the math, the death rate from COVID in kids under 18 is about one in 100,000 if you include the kids with comorbidities like obesity and diabetes and chronic lung disease. The death rate from COVID in healthy kids under 18 is one in 2.5 million for healthy kids. The COVID vaccines have not been shown to work well or last very long in pediatric patients. Let's look at some of that data. In the Pfizer-BioNTech kids study, there were really concerning limitations of the clinical study, and yet, the data was used to make decisions about recommending COVID vaccines for children. Some of the things that would be really important to look at would be things like the COVID so-called vaccine prevent hospitalization due to COVID-19 in children, or does it prevent multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which can be serious and would be an important consideration for those of us who need to make vaccine decisions about children. But interestingly, the phase three trials were not even designed to be able to detect statistically significant differences between treatment groups for the outcome of hospitalization due to COVID-19. Also, the phase three trials were not designed to detect statistically significant differences between treatment groups for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And when they were looking at SARS-CoV-2 seroconversion, trying to determine the differences between natural infection versus immunogenicity or the ability of children to mount antibodies to the vaccine, no real data was available and no data was available about the effect on asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection. So let's unpack that a little bit. So summarizing that, based on only about a thousand kids in each arm of the trial, thousand kids that got the shot and a thousand kids who got the placebo, the conclusions of the study were based on only 16 cases of clinical COVID. And remember the kids usually tolerate COVID quite well and about 50% of them are actually asymptomatic. No results were available on reducing hospitalizations or deaths. No results were available on reducing multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which was a big justification for working on a vaccine for this age group. No results on the formation of antibodies, the prevention of carrier status, and no results to prove that it ended transmission to others. 
So what children were told about why they needed to get this shot to help not kill their grandmother turned out not to have data to support it. Furthermore, COVID vaccines for kids did not even have to meet the FDA previous 50% efficacy standards. Dr. Peter Marks, who was the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research at the FDA, told a House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus this back in May of 2022. And sure enough, the vaccines for kids in some cases only were about 32 to 33% effective in some age group. So here's a huge study limitation. Not enough kids get sick enough with COVID to be able to prove the effectiveness of the vaccine in the studies that were done. We know the jab doesn't prevent transmission. How can you study how it decreases symptoms or reduces hospitalization when so many kids have so few symptoms or are completely asymptomatic? Children rarely have to be hospitalized. And we know that the Pfizer study was vastly underpowered with only about a thousand kids in each arm. Many thousands more, according to some power calculations by some very good epidemiologists, about 80,000 enrollees would have been necessary. Many thousands more would have been needed in the trials to determine any effect on hospitalization rates or death. Furthermore, any protection from the vaccine against COVID symptoms wanes in several months for children as shown by the arrow in this slide. And furthermore, the vaccinated are now more likely to get symptomatic infection than the unvaccinated. This is called negative efficacy, and we'll come back to that in further lectures. I'm very, very concerned that there is no long-term safety data. Usually when we do vaccine trials, they last about 10 years and you look at a long-term period where you can look at the difference between the illnesses or the overall deaths and the group that got the vaccine versus the ones that didn't. With these jabs, even in the original Pfizer trial, after two months, the placebo group was offered to get the vaccine and most of them took it. So we do not have any long-term follow-up on those 22,000 people that were in the original trial to look if there is a difference between how often they die a year or two or five years down the road, or if they develop more illnesses like autoimmunity or heart disease one or two or five years down the road. In the initial pediatric trial, there are also no long-term comparisons of overall health or all-cause mortality because the control group was eliminated after six months. In the Pfizer-BioNTech trial, the CDC looked at that data and made the recommendation that COVID-19 jabs can now be given simultaneously with other vaccines or within 14 days of other vaccines. But they had to admit in the question and answer period during the same meeting that they had no data on the subject of combining vaccines. The recommendations were based on over 40 years of experience safely combining vaccines, which in my opinion has ignored some significant concerns raised by clinicians on increasing chronic illness and side effects in kids who are given lots of vaccines at the same visit. But furthermore, this recommendation ignores the fact that this vaccine is unlike any other vaccine in history. So 
I believe that they were comparing apples and oranges even to come up with that recommendation. I'm also concerned that the data is evolving very quickly and that the CDC has stated some things as fact to reassure the public that later turn out not to be true as further evidence is collected. And this is one example where the CDC removed a statement about mRNA from the jabs being broken down in a few days and spike protein leaving in a few weeks after the data came in that it actually can last much longer. Now, it's important to understand that kids have very resilient, innate immune systems. So we're going to come to a little bit of an immunology lesson so you'll understand why this is so important. Immune modulation begins in the gut. When we are born, the digestive tract of humans is sterile, but within just a few days of life, we're colonized by microbes in our environment. At first, especially breastfed infants get a lot of bifidobacteria, and later they develop more lactobacillus. Both of these are good gut flora that do a lot of good things for us. Once the child starts taking other foods, a diverse microbial population develops in the gastrointestinal tract. And this is a huge part of our immune defense. Just as I hope your kids have some diversity in their playmates, we also want diversity in gut flora because that promotes health and decreases chronic disease later. Wide varieties of different types of gut flora are associated with less chronic disease as children age. So feeding your children whole foods from nature and including things like fermented food, pickles, kefir, kombucha, sauerkraut, miso, this all leads to gut flora diversity and overall better health. Now let's look at the two branches of immune defense. Your children have very good innate immunity, which is a generalized early first line of defense type of immune system. And there's several parts to that. One is barriers like skin and tears. It includes phagocytes like neutrophils and macrophages. These are in your child's blood and help come gobble up germs that they are exposed to. There are also cells that release inflammatory mediators that help modulate the immune system in your child. And natural killer cells are really good at going after bad germs. There are also complicated complement cascades and protein interactions that are protective. Now, adaptive immunity is very specific. This is what remembers the infection and is very customized. And this is what vaccines tend to work on. So what happens with adaptive immunity is that antigen presenting cells present the antigen or the protein to T cells, which then help B cells fight the abnormal and infected cells. And B cells make antibodies, which is what vaccines are trying to achieve. So therefore, we at FLCCC believe that the overwhelming evidence is that vaccines for COVID are not needed in pediatric patients. But don't just take our word for it. The Canadian physicians and scientists who went on record writing a letter to their health agencies included 117 references and six pages of figures and graphs to support their contention that children do not need these vaccines and that the risks of the vaccines outweigh the benefits. Furthermore, they were able to clarify this issue of negative efficacy that I mentioned earlier because they showed that the proportion of cases of COVID-19 were actually highest 
among those who had been boosted, lower among the fully inoculated, and least among the not fully inoculated, including the uninoculated or unvaccinated. So this was a very strong set of evidence for the Canadian authorities to consider. Furthermore, at the Global COVID Summit, a physician's declaration, which was signed by 17,000 physicians and scientists, including me, stated that healthy children should not be subject to forced vaccination. They face negligible risk from COVID, the disease itself, but face potential permanent or irreversible risk from some of the side effects of the vaccine. Furthermore, the denial of the value of natural immunity, which most children now have, has prolonged the pandemic. And we know that masks and lockdowns have harmed children in terms of their education and in terms of their mental health very severely. Furthermore, we believe that health agencies and government institutions should not be interfering with the physician-patient relationship. True informed consent is one of the bedrocks of good medicine. All medical decisions require us as clinicians to fully disclose the risks, the benefits, and any alternatives to treatment. And that did not happen during the COVID so-called pandemic. We know from the Nuremberg Code that you are not allowed to bribe or coerce people to get medical procedures, especially when they're experimental. I was very, very distressed at the use of peer pressure to get kids to take the jab so that they could be part of the group. I was very, very distressed by the use of gift cards and pizza parties and donuts in order to get children to take this vaccine under the pretense that it would protect their grandparents. So the doctrine of true informed consent, in my mind, is sacred. So in conclusion, we feel very strongly that there's very good evidence that children do not need COVID vaccine. In my next segment, I'm going to talk to you about some of the risks that have been reported and the side effects that have come out of the use of COVID vaccine in children. So I hope that you will tune in for that. And thank you so much for listening to our inaugural episode.